Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. Fresh off of Talk the Thrones, The Ringer is introducing a new live Twitter after show covering season two of HBO's Big Little Lies. Immediately after each episode, The Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes will be going live to give their initial reactions and break down everything we saw in the episode. And to kick us off, there will be a special season two preview airing on Friday, June 7th at 12 p.m. Pacific. So join Amanda and Mina for Big Little Live every Sunday on Twitter. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. This is the last episode of our month-long anniversary celebration. Next week, we'll go back to our normal one-episode-a-week programming. My guest today is the journalist David Wallace-Wells, who's also the deputy editor of New York Magazine. He just wrote a New York Times best-selling book called The Uninhabitable Earth. I highly recommend you read it and buy it. Basically, it's a wake-up call about climate change. Climate change is not coming in the future. It's already here. All you have to do is look at current events. Right now, there's record flooding in Oklahoma and record number of tornadoes in Kansas. It's something that we're dealing with on a constant basis. Fires in California, record heat temperatures in in Europe. We're all pretty screwed, it seems. There's no way out. So what do we do? Frankly, this episode is tough to listen to. Nobody wants to hear this stuff. And the fact of the matter is, I have been thinking a lot more about the environment because I'm in the restaurant industry and because obviously I, I've just had a son. And it's something I think about more and more in terms of the future that he's going to inhabit and become the custodian of. And people aren't inclined to face painful truths. I know I'm not one of them. And it's almost like we think of the environment as some kind of Ponzi scheme. It's not our problem. It's someone else's. And especially when you can still look out the window and see a beautiful day and enjoy it, it's really hard to sort of delay your gratification and think about the future. I think it's a real test of conviction. It's easy for me to say I care about climate change or the environment, but it's another thing to start making sacrifices. And listen, I'm only talking about this because I really haven't done anything. It's the same thing that when I started cooking, and then you learn about being a better custodian to the farmers and the purveyors and and the land that you sort of take from for the restaurants, and you get to get a better and deeper understanding of it. And I'm just sort of beginning this process with the environment and climate change. It's something that I've definitely put off for too long. So it's about making sacrifices. And this book is tough, and this podcast is tough. I talk about this in the podcast with David, but there's a huge question for me as the owner of a growing business. On one hand, I'm responsible for the lives of basically over thousands of people and their employment and their livelihood. And the more money we can make, the more profitable we can be, the better I can take care of everyone's lives. But at some point, there is a, I don't want to use inflection point, but I wonder as we grow our business, when is enough, right? I ask myself that all the time. I don't need any more restaurants. I don't want to serve so much meat or fish. And it's worth limiting the supply or looking at alternative protein sources so that I can do my little part. And I don't have the answers, guys. I'm telling you right now, I know I could be part of the problem. I probably am part of the problem. But I'm just trying to sort of ask myself the hard questions. In the book, David says that to limit the damage of climate change, 
We need monumental change on a governmental level. But he also says that even small incremental change is important. And I think consumers can play a huge part in that, especially in food. And if we can prevent the world's temperatures from rising even a fraction of a degree, that's millions of lives saved and homes saved. Anyway, I understand if you can't make it all the way through this episode, or if you're like, I just want to learn some fucking recipes or where to go that's a delicious place to eat or some new chef. But I actually feel strangely better about talking about the stuff. I know I think about worst case scenarios all the time. And I like to sort of reverse engineer from that. It's better to know those facts than to like sort of live in this vague fear in the back of your head of what might happen and sort of like keep on putting it off and delaying the inevitable. So listen, I know this is crazy and I am conflicted with a lot of problems and I don't have the answers. Let me just repeat. I don't have the answers and I I just want to start asking myself the hard questions. So here's my conversation with David Wallace-Wells. And uh, I think it's really important that you listen to it. And it's a very, very important book to read because he's not, he's someone that wanted to tell a good story and wasn't a super environmentalist beforehand, but has become an advocate for it because of his research. You know, he's the kind of voice you should be listening to. Anyway, I'll let you guys listen to someone that knows way better about the environment than myself. Here's David Wallace-Wells. So when I did the podcast with Jerry Saltz at the New York Magazine office, Jerry was excited to show me around where New York Magazine gets made. But the thing that he said over and over and over again, at least a dozen times, was you have to meet (laughs) David Wallace-Wells. You have to meet him. He just wrote this book, and we think it's the most important book that you'll probably ever read. He's been like a great, great advocate (laughs) about it. So lucky I got to, like, get hooked up with him as an editor. Yeah. And, uh... Truth be told, right? Like, I, I, I had no idea uh, what this book was going to be about. He didn't even tell me what the book was about. He just said, you got to talk to him. You're going to have a lot to say about food. And I was like, okay. And then went to your office and you gave me a copy of your book. And the title is? The Uninhabitable Earth. And I read it. And I have a lot. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a very important book. But it's really hard to read. Yeah. In the best possible way. I'm not saying it's challenging. It's not challenging at all. It's hard to read because if you're a, you know, a human on this planet, <laughs> it definitely it's bleak out there. Yeah. So, and I was there was so much enthusiasm for meeting you, and then I know, and now I understand why Jerry was so adamant that we talk and about all the ways, at least in food and the food ways that people talk about the environment, but no one actually is doing anything about it. It's a lot of talk. Yeah. I mean, that's the true of the whole world, really. And I basically came across, came away when I read your book and I like how there's the, the even the line, if you got this far, you know, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> it almost feels like it's a Ponzi scheme. Like we've created a Ponzi scheme and the world is like yeah. this. The environment is the Ponzi scheme and then we're just delaying the repercussions for later generations. I mean, there are these economists who and economic historians who think that the whole history of economic growth, like everything that we know of as like the world getting richer and better and more prosperous and safer and all of that is just because like a few hundred years ago, we realized that we could pull this stuff out of the ground, coal and oil, and burn it for free energy. And that like if you look at the whole history of human civilization before that, basically 
lives didn't get better. Like everybody's life was about as good as their grandparents' lives and about as good as their grandchildren's lives. And there was really no improvement. And that changed with the industrial revolution. But yeah, there's, I, you know, I don't totally subscribe to this way of looking at the world, but it's in certain ways really persuasive to think that like, we've basically just been exactly as you put it, like we're building a Ponzi scheme economy off of these fossil fuels. And like, we're only now starting to deal with just how bad that's going to make life going forward. And before, you know, let me just preface too, right? Who you are and the book that you published, what, like three, four months ago? Yeah. Well, I mean, what can I tell you? I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Um, I'm a magazine editor. I've written a little bit about climate, but I'm not like an old guard environmentalist. I think that's one of the things that's kind of um, interesting and distinguishing about my book is that I'm not like, I'm really a lifelong urban person. I've never loved nature. I've never like been a hiker. I've never been an outdoors person. I've never even had a pet, right? And so I don't come to the subject in the same way that a lot of environmental writers do. I come to it as a guy who thought that he was living outside of nature in the way that so many parts of our modern life tell us that like we live outside of nature. But I started looking at this research really closely a couple of years ago, and it just shocked me how, I mean, it sounds like such a naive revelation, but like wherever you are in the world, you're inside nature. And when nature changes, like your life will be changed too. And, you know, that's especially true when you think about there are these economic impacts. People say that if we stay on the course we're on with climate change by the end of the century, global GDP could be 30% smaller than it would be without climate change. That's an impact that's twice as big as the Great Depression. It will be permanent. There's a relationship between temperature and conflict. So like if we end up again at the end of the century where we're headed, we could have twice as much war as we have today. Temperature impacts like the development of cognitive development of children. It impacts rates of mental illness. It impacts agricultural yield. So if we end up at four degrees, which we're, we're on track for for the end of the century, our grain yields could be half as bountiful as they are today. And we'd be trying to feed probably 50% more people. I mean, you just go down the line and there's no aspect of modern life that is going to be untouched by this force. And I felt personally, like when I realized that I felt not just scared and um, horrified and also kind of amazed and kind of in awe of it, but also pulled into that story myself. Cause I really felt for a long time, like climate change is something that's happening. It's important to think about. It's important to deal with, but I live outside of it. And when I learned all this stuff, I just felt the force of getting pulled into the furnace and was like, no, my life and the lives of the people I love and the lives of my children. And, you know, all of those people will be affected by it. This is not something that can be compartmentalized or run away from no matter where you are. Even living in lower Manhattan, walking down concrete streets, looking up at steel skyscrapers, you're still living in nature. And when climate change comes roaring for us, like it's going to really, I don't know, it's going to really change everybody's life, even in a place like New York. And what does it say about human nature for us not to look at all the facts and the yeah. pretty clear data that's there and to react the same way you are? Because well, I think what is most compelling about your book and your stance and talking about the changes that were, whether it's the LA fires or all the problems that we're seeing in the world today, yeah. somewhat related to rising temperatures. I mean, is there anything we can understand about ourselves? Because like, why are we not doing anything more about it? I mean, it's a really complicated question to answer. And I don't feel myself like I have a totally satisfying response. I mean, I think that we all, at every level, we have biases, we have emotional reflexes, psychological reflexes that make us reluctant to like look squarely at some really scary stuff and think 
seriously about the possibility that the future could be a lot darker than the present is. You know, I feel that way myself. Like I'm, I've been working on this material. I've been sitting with it for two years, like real, you know, knee deep. And it still doesn't totally overwhelm my life. I still live through compartmentalization. I still like watch the college basketball that I want to watch. I still like going out to dinner and eating like good food and, you know, love hanging out with my, my daughters, like one year old. And it's not like my whole life has been completely taken over by climate panic, even though I know enough to know really it should, right? So I think all of us have those coping mechanisms, but I think the bigger problem is like why our politics haven't responded, why our geopolitics haven't responded, because, you know, it's one thing to have an individual intuition about something. It's one thing to have a kind of emotional response to some set of facts about the world. But you and I can really only make so much difference on climate, even if we devoted ourselves totally to it. The problem is so big, it requires policy response, political response. And we can talk about exactly how that, like the math of that, if you want. But, um, you know, basically, like, if you and I and everyone we know never ate a hamburger again, there's still going to be millions of people, probably billions of people in the world who are still going to be eating hamburgers and or beef. And since we need to completely zero out on our carbon emissions, not just reduce them to stabilize the climate, we can't just have like a 15% reduction in beef. You know, we need to figure out a new way of raising animal protein that doesn't require carbon. And that can only happen really through policy and through such massive R&D investment that has to come through public you know, and that's what politics is for. Like, we don't ask individuals to donate all of their money to charity before we ask them to, like, participate in a tax system. Like, we build a tax system so that everybody can collectively develop a social safety net that can benefit everybody. That's, like, what politics is for. We need the same kind of approach on climate, and we just haven't had it at all. And our reasons for that, I mean, I think largely it's because for a long time economists thought that fast action on climate was going to be really expensive and that logic is really reversed lately, but even so, it's been hard to get policy off the ground. But, you know, I think ultimately at the bottom of it is just we don't want to believe that the future is really scary. And we look for reasons to think that it won't be. And the truth is, like, there's so little news on climate that's encouraging. And so the best we can do is fall into a kind of complacency. Like, I think nobody who knows anything about the issue can really be all that optimistic about it. But, like, it's a pretty comfortable posture for you and me and people like us to take to think somebody else will figure it out or it's not my problem or in any event, like even if it's scary. But, like, but isn't that it? Yeah. I, mean, I only understand at best the culinary world and kitchens. And I see this and it's now like a maxim in my, just believe it, it's burned in my brain that left to a cook's own devices and their sort of decision-making unless they're like properly trained and learn on their own volition, they're always going to do just enough so they don't get in trouble. Yeah. And when presented with a real problem that needs to be fixed, more often than not, they're going to wait for someone else to fix it. Because why would they want to endure suffering and pain and to make their life materially worse when, you know, they don't have to. And I just, that's what I can't get out of my own head is even with all the education that still is not out there, and if people are armed with it, how do you convince people to willingly make some sacrifices, right? Like, that just isn't in our DNA. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I think it's even more acute, honestly, at the level of our politics. So, you know, the Paris Accords, they were signed in 2016. This was like international agreement to limit carbon emissions. Hailed as like a huge breakthrough. 
all the nations of the world signed on, literally every single nation in the world. And these are all politicians, leaders who have, you know, the future of the planet in their minds and their hearts, like they have their values in the right place. And they signed an agreement to reduce their carbon emissions. Now we're like, we're just three years later and no, there's not a single country in the world that's on track to honor those commitments. Every single nation is failing, falling behind. And people talk a lot about the U.S. pulling out of the accords. And I agree that's totally whatever, abhorrent along with everything else that Donald Trump has done. But ultimately, it's like if every other country in the world that is, is still in the accords is not honoring them, it's sort of hard to get all that agitated about American withdrawal. And all of those people are like the high-minded. They have their, you know, they have the right values. They have the right goals. And yet they see in some self-interested way and, you know, their nation can benefit from slower action and letting the rest of the world like clean up the mess. And that's the worldview that you describe in the mind of the chef is the worldview. It's not just the worldview of like these global leaders. It's also the way that our politics works is that, you know, we revert so quickly to this like zero sum competitive view of um, our own well-being that like we can't conceive of doing something that's going to benefit everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it's one of the real great tragedies of climate change is if you had to like imagine a threat big enough to call into being like true global cooperation, climate change would be it. It's like it's everywhere. It's all encompassing. No life will be unspared. It's genuinely existential, especially if it gets really bad. And yet we're staring it down at a time when our politics is moving totally in the other direction. I mean, you say the numbers, right? If the people that die because of climate change-related events, whether it's through drought or pollution, air quality, is what, how many people a year? Well, just air, air pollution just alone is 9 million people a year, which is like one and a half Holocaust every year. And like we say, you know, whatever, not not to— my grandparents are Holocaust survivors, but like not to make light, but it's like we say never again, but, but it's I like think we're doing it. That was very powerful yeah. for you to equate it to the Holocaust, right? Yeah. For most of the modern world, that's the benchmark for human atrocity and yeah. the worst part of us. Well, I mean, it's great. So in the book I get there from, I talk about this paper that's, um, it says that just between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees Celsius, so just to pull back for a quick second, we're at about 1 degrees warming now from pre-industrial temperatures, and we're on track for about 4 by the end of the century. And there's a lot of argument about whether we could possibly conceivably stay below two degrees, which is a level that the scientists of the world call the threshold of catastrophe and the island nations of the world call genocide. And there was a paper that came out just studying the difference between 1.5 degrees and two degrees, just in that half degree of warming, just through air pollution would kill 153 million additional people. And when I say that, like everybody's eyes, like they just go wide, their faces go ashen. And they're like, oh my God, how could we possibly conscience that amount of suffering, that amount of dying? And we shouldn't, right? Like that response is appropriate morally, but we are already killing that many people through air pollution and none of us are paying attention to it at all. And I think that's one of the great dangers of climate change generally. And it's something I actually just wrote about in this in this new piece um, in New York Magazine about California wildfires, which is that we look at a scenario that's like 50 years down the road and we say, oh, that cannot possibly be livable. We have to do everything we can to avoid it. But the closer we get to it, our response is less trying to avoid it and more just normalizing and adjusting. And so now you have, like right now in California, it's the year after the worst wildfires in state history. The fires in LA were twice as bad as any fire that had ever hit. And yet everybody I talked to in LA was just like, oh, we've always had fires. Like these were like a little bit worse, but we're figuring it out. 
And I kept thinking like, no, no, no. That's like, first of all, they're going to get way worse from this going forward. But second of all, even if they were only as bad as last year's, that was an unprecedentedly bad event. Like, I mean, I was in LA for the fires. And I'd never seen anything like that. It's crazy. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. Completely, utterly insane. And people were just like, it's so big. People are just sort of like, oh, yeah, it smells like smoke and you can't see over there. But my life over here on this side, on the east side, is completely okay. I'm like, yeah. whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you imagine someone saying to you in New York, like, oh, you're on like 84th Street on 47th Street. It's like there's a huge fucking fire burning. You'd be like, get me out of here. But it actually made me think about when Hurricane Sandy happened and how everything south of sort of Midtown was like the walking dead. Yeah. And I remember doing a charity dinner on the Upper East Side and life was normal. Yeah. No one cared. Yeah. And that's when I saw maybe like, this is just fucked. <laughs> yeah. It's fucked. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is a positive way of looking at it, which is like, we will find a way to endure. Because a lot of people look at the climate projections, especially at like four, five, six degrees. And they say like, well, human civilization can't possibly survive that. And I think we're already learning like how resilient and adaptable human civilization is. The cost of it though is that we're just going to be looking away from all of the suffering elsewhere in the world in order to like feel comfortable about the lives that we're leading in places like, you know, the wealthy West. Can you talk about, I know we're jumping all over the place because this is such a massive topic. Just to break it down a little bit, the gist of the book, well, it's a lot. I think at the core issue, the crux of it is the incremental increase in temperature. Yeah. Right. And why climate change and global warming, just making it hotter in the world today has the craziest, most insane impact on how we live today. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, big picture, the planet is already hotter than it has ever been in all of human history, which means that all of human evolution, the development of agriculture, the development of civilization, everything we know about modern life, all of that happened under climate conditions that no longer prevail. Now, to me, that means all of those propositions become then much more questionable. It's like, do I think the human animal would have evolved in a climate situation as warm as this one? Probably. But would we have developed agriculture? I honestly don't know because already in the Middle East where we did develop agriculture, it's getting a lot harder to grow crops. And that's with hundreds or tens of thousands of years of real wisdom and knowledge about how to grow crops in precisely that environment. If we had to do that from scratch, given the conditions we have now, I don't know if we would have. And if we hadn't developed agriculture, we wouldn't have developed civilization. I mean, that's like how we, we got our systems of taxation and government and all that stuff comes out of agriculture. You know, it seems so small when you talk about one degree, two degrees of warming. These are such little amounts. But when you realize that, like, we have conducted the entire human experiment under conditions that no longer exist, it's really as though we've, like, collectively landed on a totally different planet with a completely different set of rules. And we're trying to adapt what we know from Earth to what we know of this new planet and figure out what works and what doesn't. But we don't yet know what works and what doesn't. And the impacts are honestly everywhere. So I mentioned the agricultural impacts. The, just from heat, we could have half as much grain from the same amount of land as we would have today. The impacts on public health are really terrifying. Mosquitoes that used to only fly in the tropics are expected to be flying all as far north as the Arctic Circle, which means that all of these diseases that were restricted to very small parts of the world could be completely global. And at a much more local level, ecosystems that used to contain diseases will be scrambled in ways that make it much, much bigger threat. You go down the line. So there's like 
just the climate damages from storms and other and flooding, by the end of the century, if we don't change course, we end up at four degrees would total $600 trillion. That's twice as much wealth as exists in the world today. Um, there'll be places on the planet that would be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. And the UN says as a result of all these pressures, probably as soon as 2050, we could have as many as 200 million climate refugees. They say it's possible we could have as many as a billion climate refugees, which is as many people as today live in North and South America combined. Now, again, those are estimates I think are a bit high, but even if you take the low end, the 200 million, even if you cut it in half, it's a hundred times the size of the Syrian refugee crisis, which totally scrambled European politics. Which was caused, you say, a little bit by climate change. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting conversation because climate scientists are really careful about this kind of thing in the same way that they're careful about attributing a particular hurricane or a particular wildfire to climate change. And it's true. Like if you look at one of these events, if you look at the drought in Syria that produced a famine that produced the civil war, you say, oh, like right next door in Lebanon, they had the same climate conditions and they didn't have a civil war. So you can't say that the civil war was caused by climate change. But if you look globally, the fact that we're having like 30% more hurricanes and the hurricanes we are seeing are more intense, even if any individual hurricane, you can't really point your finger to and say that's climate. The big picture is we're having many more of them and they're much more intense. And to me, that's equivalent. You know, I, I write about this a little bit in the book, but I was raised, I'm like a child of the 90s. I was new about climate change. I was aware of it, but I was basically raised to think that it was a really slow moving story. And that like, you know, James Hansen, who's like one of the leading alarmist climate scientists, the name of his book for a general audience is Storms of My Grandchildren. But more than half of all of the carbon emissions that we put into the atmosphere from the burning of fossil fuels have come in the last 30 years. That's like the most shocking stat. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. It's since Al Gore published his first book on warming. It's since the UN established its IPCC Climate Change Commission. It's since, I read the book, it's since the premiere of Seinfeld. So I'm 36 years old. I have memories that are older than that period of time, right? I have memories of producing carbon that are older than that time because I remember driving when I was younger than six years old, taking flights when I was younger than six years old. In those 30 years, we've gone from what was a stable climate, scientists were a little worried about where we were headed, but it was basically stable, to the total brink of catastrophe, which is where we are now. That's a story that my lifetime contains. And the next 30 years are going to determine where we end up, which means that my life will also contain yeah. that story. And that is just you know, again, it's like, it makes me uncomfortable to use words like mythological and theological, but it's like, that is the level of story that we're all participating in and writing. Because ultimately, I don't mean to sound like too optimistic. I'm basically like an alarmist, if not a fatalist about this, but like, ultimately, it's all up to us. Like the reason the climate is changing is because we're putting carbon into the atmosphere. We could conceivably stop doing that pretty quickly if we wanted to. There's so much to talk about here. And I'll, you know, I was just thinking while you were explaining all this, I've been going to Wyoming since 1999 uh, religiously because it's like a place where I can get my head on straight. And what I love seeing is the Tetons. It just fills me with joy and hope because it's so majestic. And every year, whether it's July or August now, the past sort of five, six, seven, eight years, you can't really see them anymore because there's always wildfires coming from yeah. the West. And it's now just... I have to tell my wife or people that visit us, like, you used to be able to see them. And I mean, this is an insignificant, yeah, yeah. insignificant thing. We're talking about visibility of a fucking mountaintop. But like— Well, it, it's insignificant and it is significant because, you know, 
aesthetic things matter. When I think about the fact that climate change could mean that all of the trees in North America would just stop turning orange and just turn brown in the fall. And I think about like what those paintings, the Hudson River School would look like, what that would look like, like a generation from now. Or, you know, thinking about what it would mean to be reading the Odyssey when the Mediterranean is going to be a desert. I mean, like we navigate this universe through the humanities and those are all going to be changed too. I mean, I think, you know, the, the book is sort of divided into four parts and the thing that's actually most interesting to me is not the climate impacts, which is like the, the biggest part of the book. It's the second part, but the third part, which is like, what is it going to mean for our politics and our culture and, you know, what it's going to mean for our relationship to technology and to capitalism. And I think these are all like, you know, we know a bit about sea level rise. We're starting to learn about some of these other climate impacts, but we really haven't started to think about like, what's it going to mean if um, we stop thinking about the future as like a more prosperous time than the past mm. and stop thinking about progress as something like an inevitable feature of modern life. I don't know how things work because, I mean, I'm not a Marxist, a socialist. I have no opinions on this other than like, why are we here? And I just continue to go back like, maybe capitalism was yeah. the Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I mean, my, my perspective is like, the system is fucked. Um, but why is the system fucked? Well, to me, it's deeper than capitalism. So, like, you see countries in the world that are way to the left of the U.S., way greener than the U.S. There are countries in the world that are genuinely socialist, and they're all doing really badly on carbon. <laughs> I think it's like it has something more to do with our really basic desire for stuff, for more comforts, for cheaper comforts. And for a really long time, the best way to manufacture more stuff more cheaply was by using the power of fossil fuels. And we're, we've been so sh short-sighted in the way that we made those choices that we ended up, yeah, like in this really ugly situation. But I do think it is now possible. It's not possible in every sector of the economy, but it's possible in some sectors, like energy can really be quite quickly greened because renewables are now cheaper than dirty energy in most parts of the world. And there are other parts of the economy that are similarly, like, progress can be made. But, you know, my own feeling is more like it's not economics, it's political economy. So the way that forces of, like corporate forces in particular, have captured political power in our system and made it really hard to make progress, that has been much more damning than the market itself. So there was a study that came out last week or week before by the IMF, like major pro-business organization saying that globally we're subsidizing the fossil fuel business $5.3 trillion a year. That is, just to put it in perspective, we have today machines that can suck carbon out of the atmosphere. They're expensive though, but we could run them theoretically. It's more complicated than this, but theoretically we could run them at such a scale that we could suck all of the new carbon out of the atmosphere, totally neutralizing all of the planet's carbon emissions, which means we could actually keep things going exactly as we have them now and not be increasing the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere and making warming worse. We could do that for about $3 trillion a year. So we're spending more money propping up fossil fuel business right now than it would cost to completely eliminate the problem in one fell swoop. Now, the fact that that is going on is not a problem of capitalism. It's a failure of capitalism. 
I mean, if, if the market was really working right, those businesses that needed those subsidies wouldn't, wouldn't right. be in business. Now, I don't mean to sound like a super pro-market person either. Obviously, the market has many, many problems. But I think it's like we have politics to organize our social priorities. And for way too long, those priorities have been far too focused on the well-being of big corporations, many of which were fossil fuel companies or those associated with fossil fuel production. And that's really perverted our whole way of life. And I do think that if we, I mean, it's when people ask me like, what would you do if you weren't, it's like the absolute first thing I would do is just eliminate those subsidies. It's such low hanging fruit. There's a lot of other shit we need to do on top of that, but it's just grotesque that we're literally investing in or supporting businesses that are mortgaging our future for their own profit. Are we subsidizing food? My understanding is that we're doing a lot more subsidizing of non-food agriculture than we are of food directly. That, you know, there's a lot of like for ethanol and like that kind of stuff. But we're also subsidizing to the extent that we are subsidizing food. We're subsidizing the wrong kind of food. Right. We're subsidizing unhealthy food. It's almost all going to huge like agribusiness, not to um, farmers who are working more sustainably with regenerative agriculture and, and that kind of stuff. And that's maybe something we could talk a little bit more about. But, you know, plants are... Uh, carbon eaters. <laughs> they suck carbon out of the atmosphere and they produce oxygen. And the more plants we have on the planet, the better off we'll be with carbon and warming. And the better, if we can engineer those or grow those plants to suck more carbon out, we'll be still better off. And there are a lot of people who are doing innovative work in that area and trying to make agriculture work for the planet rather than against it, which is on net how it is now. But I mean, some of those people that I know, like the Land Institute in Kansas, or yeah. the idea to create perennials, it's going to produce less delicious things. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I say. It's like, if people are going to improve the world, at least through food, you're going to have to make it a less delicious future. And I don't know if people want to sacrifice that. Yeah. In a weird way, hyper-locality and the demand for marketing freshness and organic has actually made it materially worse. <laughs> yeah. There are all these studies showing that, like, you know, organic farming is, like, worse for the environment. But, you know, on the on the question of quality, I mean, we made a big bargain, like, three quarters of a century ago, a century ago, where we all collectively started eating less delicious food. Right. I mean, like the, the huge population boom of the middle 20th century across the world had to do with large-scale agriculture that was making less delicious food than people had eaten before, such that, you know, like, you know this stuff way better than I do, but like the case that like a Brit born in 1870 would have had a grandmother who knew how to cook like local produce and a Brit born in 1950 did not, you know, and like that was completely changed because it made economic sense for people to be working all day and just picking up stuff at the supermarket that was mass produced. And that's obviously also true in the U.S. So we have made trade-offs in the past. Personally, I like want to keep eating well. I want to keep living well. And I don't know, I may be sort of naively optimistic, but when I look at the world generally, not just the world of food, I do see still some window for making that possible. I just think time is so short that if we don't make really some really radical changes quite quickly, the climate conditions are going to just be so, so different that we're going to be living and making choices in a really dramatically degraded world rather than one in which we just have to be a little smarter about what we're choosing and what we're consuming. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. 
ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by Indochino. I don't love getting dressed up, mainly because suits don't fit me that well. It's one of the reasons why I guess I like cooking, because wearing chef whites is so easy. But I still have to get dressed up on occasion, whether it's a wedding, whether it's an event, or taking my missus out for a nice dinner. Recently, I had to go to Blue Hillstone Barns, and I had to wear a suit. And Indochino makes suits and shirts to my exact measurement for an unparalleled fit and comfort, so I don't have to worry about how I look, because it feels great. Guys love the wide selection of high-quality fabrics and colors, not to mention the option to personalize the details, including your lapel, lining, pockets, and buttons. The process is easy. Just visit a stylist at one of their 40 showrooms in North America and have them take your measurements. Or measure at home yourself and shop online at Indochino.com. It's that easy. Then submit your measurements with your design choices and relax while your suit gets professionally tailored. Guys, like this is a great deal. My listeners this week can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379 at Indochino.com when entering Chang at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. It looks great, guys. It feels great. And if you haven't had a made-to-measure suit, it makes all the difference. Plus, shipping is free. Again, that's Indochino.com, promo code Chang, for any premium suit, just $379.00 and free shipping. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O dot com. Promo code Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Incredible deal for a premium made-to-measure suit. Once you go custom, you won't go back. And now, back to the show. You bring up in your book, and I remember reading it way back when, uh, was it Thomas Malthus? Yeah. And Ehrlich. I can't remember the fellow's first Paul name. Paul Ehrlich, yeah. Paul Ehrlich. He's still alive, actually. They had similar hypothesis yeah. of the world at large with population uh, not having enough, basically, food to feed the world in terms of, I don't know what the formula is exactly. What was it? Well, it's just basically like the real anxiety, even up until the mid-20th century, was that if we had too many people, the planet just couldn't sustain those people, couldn't feed those people. And Paul Ehrlich was this guy who wrote a real alarmist book in late 50s, early 60s, called The Population Bomb. And he was basically saying, like, if the population trajectories continued in the developing world, those people would just starve. and would be mass, mass die-offs. And that didn't work out. Not only do we have all those people now, but they're actually much richer than they were a few generations ago. Astonishingly richer, actually. But the food problem was really solved by one dude, this guy Norman Borlaug, who is from Wisconsin, I think, somewhere in the Midwest, and basically invented, you know, a new way of growing crops. And that was exported to the developing world and helped feed them. 
And it's a kind of an amazing underappreciated story, like how much this one person did to benefit the population of the world. Um, literally billions of people would have been in perennial famine if it were not for this one man's invention, which is just it's crazy to think that someone could have that kind of influence. But it also means that like we're just one dude's genius away what, from— And he invented— um, It was a series of practices having to do with fertilizer and, and how you like— Series of crop practices. Um, this guy, Charles Mann, just wrote a great book about it called The Wizard and the Prophet. But um, basically, like, industrial farming. I mean, essentially in invented industrial farming. And he didn't invent GMO practice, though. But, no. But, but there is, like, a lot of hope now for GMOs as a way of dealing with this. Like, oh, we could genetically engineer grains to be more productive or to be more heat resistant or to grow in different parts of the world where they haven't been able to grow before and that kind of thing. Or be more resistant to funguses, which... Um, or are you pro or con that? Because I know most of the people in the food world are so anti-GMO that I don't know if it will ever thrive. Yeah, I mean, it's... I personally, I'm basically anti-anti-GMO, <laughs> um, which is to say, like, all of our food is in some way GMO. There are probably some practices that might make me uncomfortable, but generally speaking, I don't think that messing around with the breeding of plants is in itself problematic. It's what's been done by farmers for millions of years. And if we can do it to make our food more sustainable and more bountiful, that's to the good. It's sort of, to me, a lot like there's a similar issue around nuclear energy, where like a lot of people on the left really, really hate the idea of nuclear power for a number of reasons. And I'm not in love with nuclear power, but like more people die every day from air pollution, from the burning of fossil fuels than have ever died from nuclear meltdowns. So I think like if you're balancing these things, like certainly we shouldn't be closing nuclear plants that are working, like we're doing it through Mile Island right now, when we don't have the renewable capacity to replace them. So just like this is such an aside, but through Mile Island, um, that capacity is going to be entirely taken up by oil and gas production. It's like who who benefits from that? Um, right. And with GMOs, I feel basically the same. It's, you know, I feel like I would rather have food that was grown locally in an organic farm by a guy I knew like down the street. But I don't think it's like problematic if we start messing around with the genetics of food. And I think it has been probably, it's been damaging that the marketing around that and the storytelling has been so effective that people really do feel like they're going to get like cancer if they eat GMO food. And yeah, but you know, even if we went all in on GMOs, like all of the research, all of the like R&D that's been done by the people with money in the agribusiness, they haven't been trying to make crops more heat resistant or more productive. They've been trying to make them more resistant to pesticides right. because they're the same companies that are producing those pesticides. And so, again, it's like we have to reprioritize. If we spent all that money developing heat resistant grain, we'd be in a much better spot rather than, you know, now it's like, I can't believe I still see advertisements for Roundup on my TV. It's like Roundup is like, it's been found to be carcinogenic and it's like in your Quaker Oats. The fact that that is legal is, I mean, I eat Quaker Oats, but like the fact that that is legal is like horrifying. Right. Um, and it's because, now I'm forgetting the name of the company that makes Roundup, and, it, and like it's because these incredibly powerful corporations have purchased quite a lot of political power and can really shape the regulatory apparatus, which is designed to serve the people. And the way that these institutions that have been designed to serve the public as a whole were, have actually been captured by corporate interests is horrifying. We know about it with the Wall Street story, but it's like the agricultural story is just as dramatic. As a business owner and now a new dad, these are things that I thought about and I knew I would take them a little bit more seriously after 
I was a, a dad. Yeah. And now it's like you read, you know, read your book and you think about your daughter growing up. And I'm just like, the mo- most powerful thing was at certain moments in the future, this is how old my daughter will be and what she might endure. And future generations, you're like, wow, that fucks with your head. It's not so far away. No, not at all. And I wonder as, you know, what can you do, right? And I'm in the business where I find it to be completely inefficient. And I question all the things that we have to do, that we think we have to do. Like, um, you know, if you're cutting a steak and you're putting on a plate, oftentimes you cut the ends off and you and you throw it away. It's like, for what? Yeah. And I wonder how important are restaurants? And as a restaurant company that continues to grow, these are questions and dilemmas that weigh incredibly heavy on me, right? Yeah. We have a fried chicken shop. You know, we can buy all the right chickens, but like what point is it you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if everyone's trying to produce QSR restaurants, there's only so many things that, there's only so many places you can get these animals, right? They don't grow on trees, at least not yet. And Well, you did put an Impossible Burger on the menu at I uh, did. Yeah, Nishi, right? And yeah. <laughs> it didn't do very well. No, it, it, it's doing well, and, it, and it, they're doing well too. But partly it's like, I've been following this for a while, and I've talked to a lot of people I won't name or just like, I don't have the exact source, but the number that continued to be repeated to me over the years was 2050. And by then we should not have enough protein units for the world at large to subsist on. And again, you talk about it in your book, that's quite shocking. People don't realize that most of the world's protein, I think at least half comes from vegetable matter. Yeah. And if all of this stuff changes, then people aren't going to get enough food. It's not just meat eaters. And most of the world that's going to suffer are the poor and impoverished, yeah. right? And so it's another reason why maybe policy won't change because the rich and the most successful are going to be the ones that benefit and are protected. But as someone that has looked at this, and it's not just impossible foods that obviously I've done stuff with, it's Beyond Meats, it's Memphis Meats, it's any meat alternative. And I look at that as like a pretty safe bet. Yeah. Pat Brown and a lot of other people that I've spoken to are like, the, the cow's not going to get any better in our lifetime. <laughs> but maybe there are signs that will make something better. And then this is not a, I'm stuck with a moral conundrum here because at the same time, it's supporting the right kind of farms, the people that are raising great grass-fed beef and pigs the right way. But the problem is when you raise things the right way, it's so expensive Yeah, that I now have a lot of arguments with people that, like I would say the slow food movement in general, I can agree with it yeah. in principle. Yeah. I'll never forget a day, this day that about 10 years ago, I was giving out food on Thanksgiving day at the food bank and I gave a demo for organic chicken and organic turkeys. And it was so fucked because if you were a family of four and under, you got a chicken, family of four more, you got a turkey. And I was like, that's just not right. Well, second of all, giving out these chickens and turkeys and a woman goes to me, she's like, I don't care about this organic chicken, organic turkey. I got to feed six yeah, people in my family. Yeah. How much is this chicken? How much is this turkey? She's like, she's like fuck no, I'm not going to buy that. Yeah. I could buy like four chickens for the price of one chicken. I can't tell her no, you know? But that to me is, that's a, such a clear illustration of like the personal choice versus policy thing. Because what we're dealing with now is we have a hierarchy of consumers and we have uh, like certain food objects are considered status objects. And if you're like the right kind of eater, you want the right kind of organic food, right? But 
that food is available for purchase and for eating among an array of choices that also include much cheaper, much less healthy, much less um, sort of moral ways of producing food, right? So like the onus is entirely on the individual to decide, am I going to eat ethically or even the cook? Like, am I going to cook eth ethically or not? Am I going to choose to spend some extra money or impose some extra cost on my customer or not? But those choices unfold in a, you know, what the behavioral economists call a choice architecture mm -hmm. that is established by law. So I, I talk a lot about beef, right? We hear a lot about the need to cut down beef for carbon purposes. And like I mentioned before, like, Unless literally everyone on the planet goes vegan, like we're going to have a problem with carbon emissions and animal proteins. But there are small-scale studies that show that if you feed cattle seaweed, just as like a small slice of their diet, their methane emissions go down by as much as 95% or 99%. And methane is the main driver of the carbon problem of beef. We could very easily have legislation that just required all cattle farmers to feed their cows a little bit of seaweed. Now, I don't know exactly what those cows taste like. I don't know exactly. It'll definitely not taste as delicious, for sure. Yeah? 100%. I mean, even if it's just like 2% of their diet? I think that it would materially change the flavor. It would change it. Like, for instance, if you eat a specific kind of duck that only eats fish, it tastes terrible. Yeah. Right? But I also think that you are you are so much of a connoisseur of that, that like, I'm not sure that I could taste the but difference. That, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that as a whole... This is going to happen. Yeah. When you told this to me about eating seaweed, I was like, oh, yeah, kelp. I think the New York Times just covered a story about kelp industry. And I, I know a guy named Brent Smith. I think that was his name. He's a kelp farmer. And you think about all the benefits of it. Like, wait, why, why are we, we not eating more kelp? Yeah. This is protein. It's all of these things. And even regardless of the environment, if the oceans get acidic, it's still going to grow. I'm like, why are we not using yeah. this? And I think it's just a matter of time. Yeah. It really is. I think it's not policy. It's just like when there's no other solutions, and people are like, oh, fuck, we have to do this. Yeah. But that's going to be in a distant future. Because as you said, there's corporate interest at play that are going to prevent people from introducing these things. So yeah. ultimately, and I think why I really appreciate what you're doing, the only way you're going to affect change is not by I think waiting for policy to change because of corporate behavior, it's going to be by the consumer and their knowledge, right? And that, that they have to force that themselves. I just think like, so take the example of airplanes, right? Like the UN says that in order to stabilize the planet below two degrees, we need to have our carbon emissions by 2030. We need to completely zero out by 2050. I mean, I don't think those are going to happen, but like you just take them for as like reasonable targets for now. That means that we need to completely, we either need to completely eliminate air travel by 2050 globally, or we need to invent a new kind of plane that can run on electricity or some kind of zero carbon fuel. Now, I personally don't see consumer pressure sufficient over even that long time period mm. to change the behavior of airlines and airline manu airplane manufacturers. But I could very easily see government action that said, in the same way that they raise the fuel efficiency standards of cars and incentivize the, the invention of electric cars, or even more directly through direct R&D, force the hand of those companies to behave more responsibly. And if we're really dependent on individual consumer action to force the hand of corporations, I think some of these big problems just aren't going to be solved anywhere near in time. And I do think, you know, it's like, Airplanes are only like 2% of global emissions, so it's not like a huge problem. But it does really illustrate the point neatly because we're seeing this growth of 
wealth in the developing world that is producing so many more passengers. And it's the same with beef. Like the richer that China gets in particular, like the more demand there's going to be for red meat, right? Not only red meat in China, this global economy and climate change, all these things, like China owns, and you can say what you want about commodity pork, right? It's a necessary evil. They own Smithfield. That's the largest pork producer in the world. They basically own North Carolina. That's a national security interest. And I just see a lot of problems going forward with food and and food ways and how it's all integrated and how everyone lives and what we're going to eat. I have a very bleak understanding of the future uh, for food, at least. Well, how has that changed with having a kid or has it not changed? I'm having a lot of internal arguments about what to do. I have to be a custodian to my company and to the people that work here for me. And we're growing. And oftentimes now, the thing that I am, I'm answering questions or at least presenting questions to myself that I never thought that I had. I was like, okay, we're opening a place in Las Vegas that's going to serve a lot of meat and fish again. How many more restaurants do we need? When is it going to take someone to just be like, okay, this is enough? I am also under the forces of the market or whatever. It's, it's just like, you're so pot committed that it's hard to pull back, even though you know what the answer is. And I don't have an answer. And I feel that where I come back to, and I don't know if I will ever have the answers to these hard questions, right? Like, do I want to open up a thousand units of the same thing across the world? And like, no, I, I don't, right? But if I can do it in a way where it's beneficial, that's the question I'm having to ask myself. For instance, a lot of my friends and I'm very proud of them that they're able to do amazing things with a culinary platform, whether it's Jose Andres or Alice Waters or you name it. People have a platform and a voice that they never had before because everyone wants to eat well. And um, I think about the most significant person or corporation that's fundamentally altered food. And I continue to go back to Chipotle. And I fucking hate Chipotle for other reasons. Yeah. They single-handedly changed the poultry industry because of corporate, not corporate governance, but other corporations saw that younger people wanted better raised chickens. Yeah. Because it not only tasted better, I think there was a message involved. Um, yeah, it was, I don't remember the guy's name, but I remember like when the, there was like a cool New York City chef who yeah. like went to be the corporate. Nate Appleman. Yeah. And there was like in the New York City food world, there was like a little bit of like, a, why would you want to do like work for a company like that? But actually like the imprint is, yeah. And exactly. And I, I'll talk about something else uh, just to remind myself, but Chipotle, again, I'm not endorsing it. I fucking hate them and <laughs> so many people there with a the white hot heat. But if I have to take a 30,000 foot view of what happened, besides them making burritos and making people happy with their food, I think they caused enough pressure with the poultry industry to be like, wait, we need to, at least on paper, say we're doing cage-free. Yeah. Let's just say, theoretically, it's like 10 minutes a day. They now get to be outside the cage. That is some point better than it was before. Yeah. Like, that's an incremental change. And I think that can only happen because of profitability and size and scope. And I don't know if you can have real fundamental change in the food world without like size because policy won't listen to you otherwise. So I wonder if Momofuku can grow and we have a voice, whether it's through media or through 
governance through our own company, maybe we can influence change. I don't know, but maybe I wonder, am I just convincing myself that so we can grow? Well, I mean, you, know? you see like, what it's like, isn't Burger King putting a um, Impossible burger. Yeah, burger on the menu and not just Burger King, but White Castle. Right. It's like real down market fast Car- food. Cargill and um, Tyson's, basically the Monsantos of the meat world. They're going to put all their resources, a lot of it, into meat alternatives. And I do believe it's not because of policy. It's because of consumers. Yeah. And I think everything you just said about the airline industry, and I thought I was a pessimist. I'm glad to meet someone that's yeah. a little bit larger <laughs> than me. Um, I weirdly believe in the consumer's ability to dictate change because I look no further than the dairy industry. And whether it's because of new wage bullshit, but dietary changes, right? Not caused because of the dairy industry, yeah. but because people were like, I want soy milk. I want almond milk. I want cashew milk. I want oat milk. Yeah, I had banana milk the other banana day. I was milk, like, where right? did that come from? We don't have to talk about the inefficiencies of producing these things because yeah. I think they're incredibly stupid. <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. To, I mean, almond milk in particular has yeah. like, been a huge problem for water in California. So dumb. Yeah. I mean, just... Again, that's just the marketing angle, but let's just say it was good for the world at large. That was consumers saying, I want something else. And over 20 years, I think it's completely decimated the dairy industry and will continue to do so where we won't. It will be probably 20% of how people consume milk in this world. We have a dairy surplus that we don't know what to do with. I don't know what the number is. And the funny thing is, is I don't think anyone in the dairy industry ever wanted this to happen. And I think you're going to see the same thing with the meat industry. And for the record, like I've done stuff with Impossible Food. So it's like, you know, I guess I'm still technically involved. This is not a commercial for it. I, I'm not saying that. It was like me putting a bet on something because I was like, oh shit, the world is going here. Yeah. So like constantly I'm putting myself in positions of conflict because I'm like, am I benefiting or am I making it materially worse? And I don't have these answers. Sometimes I think the only thing I can do is maybe just get out of it altogether. And I don't know what these answers are. Well, one thing you said just now that really strikes me as so important is like, we're talking about the, the chickens that are getting 10 minutes a day outside rather than zero minutes a day outside. And I think it's really important on climate generally to not think that like, it's all or nothing. That it's like, it's not a matter of totally avoiding climate change or ending up in a total climate hellscape. Like every tick upward of temperature that we create is going to create more suffering. And every tick upward we avoid is going to allow us to avoid some amount of suffering. And that will always be the case. If we end up at four degrees, if we end up with hundreds of millions of climate refugees and twice as much war and economy that's 30% smaller, it'll still be the case that at that point, going forward, we'll be determining the climate future of the planet. And in doing so, can make things a little bit better or a little bit worse. That's always the position that we're going to be in. And, you know, people ask me all the time, like, is there any reason for optimism? And I think it's totally a matter of perspective because if what you're basing your expectations on are the world as it is today, there's no way. Things are going to get worse, for sure. But if you're basing your expectations on where we're headed for the end of the century, four degrees, then I think we're going to do a lot to avoid that. We're going to probably end up in a considerably better place than that. And even if that means counting 10 minutes a day as a victory, I think we have to not be discouraged by that because every improvement is going to mean, you know, tens of thousands of lives are better off, maybe even depending on the scale of the improvement, millions of lives, maybe even millions of lives saved, depending on what we're doing. Whole communities that might at three degrees be totally underwater, a community that was so large, it was once 
a civilization at 2.5 degrees, maybe could be saved. And then we wouldn't, you know, even if those numbers seem so, that margin seems so small to us now, they enclose huge ranges of human outcomes. And we need to be mindful that like always and at every point, some progress is possible and important to fight for. Like it's never going to be too late. It's never going to be over. Even if it's already too late to avoid climate change totally, it's never going to be too late to take more action. And I think this is like, we just have, on some level, we just have like a different perspective on the the you problem and like what you want to do in the world. But for me, it's like, if there were different laws on the books, you would be making choices about how you're supplying your meat and who you're serving and all that stuff. Your choices would be different. And it may be that those regulations would be too intrusive and would be damaging and would contort the behavior of, of chefs in ways that were problematic and also negatively affect the experience of people who are eating for sure. But at the moment, we do not have climate change as part of our regulatory apparatus at all in this country. We don't have it as part of the way that we think about trade deals. We don't have it as part of the way that we think about marketing. Like we don't have it as part of how we think about the taxes that are attached to an airline ticket. And if we really are serious about addressing this problem or doing anything that amounts to like a two-scale response, that means like making climate change visible everywhere. So it's like if I'm walking down the supermarket aisle, I see like, oh, this bread has no carbon footprint. I'm going to buy this bread instead of that bread. I would rather that all the breads had no carbon footprint. But at the very beginning, like we just need to be aware of this aspect of our lives everywhere we look. And, you know, we see it now with extreme weather. We see it with some conflict and some, you know, natural disasters, but we're not yet seeing it reflected in our individual lives so directly. And I think that's one reason why so many people you know, especially people like us, like relatively well-off people in the rich parts of the West feel so alienated from the decision-making because they don't understand how everything connects and how everything that they're doing is part of this broader fabric. And that's, I think like the first step is just making all that visible. Maybe it's then imposing some cost on it so that you know that when you turn on your lights, like you're going to have to pay for the cost of sucking that carbon out of the atmosphere or whatever, or if you buy a plane ticket, the same. Um, Air conditioning. Yeah, totally. Let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. Their experts in acoustics and engineering even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug in your speaker and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. I just connected Sonos to my new TV and sound system in my new apartment, and it's just a game changer. I had it in my old apartment, and I had to give it up, so I was really excited to get a new Sonos system. Having surround sound is the best, especially when I'm watching sports or movies. And what's easy about Sonos is I can switch very quickly to listen to music. Hugo listens to baby tunes and some classical music, and he's been listening to a lot of Bob Marley. And when he goes to bed, I can go back very quickly to watching the NBA Finals or the end of Game of Thrones, as bad as it was. And it's great because having surround sound really does make a difference. 
It's something that I never really appreciated until I got Sonos, quite frankly, because I'm an idiot when it comes to all things electrical and computers and the fact that I can set up Sonos. If I can do it, literally anyone else can because you have no idea how incompetent I usually am at setting this kind of stuff up. I didn't have to hire anyone and I was able to do it on my own. And you can always add more speakers as you go. And right now, I'm trying to figure out where I want to add a couple more speakers in my new apartment. So go to Sonos.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. You talk about in the book about carbon capture technology. And I talk to people that are smart and movers and shakers in the world. And the common consensus I feel like I get is, oh, yeah, we're technology is going to figure yeah, this all out. Totally. Like blind faith in this. Because it always has with Ehrlich being wrong, with the fertilizer and GMO, like yeah. we're always going to find a way. Is that faith misplaced? I mean, I think if we had an infinite amount of time, I would probably have the same faith. But just taking the UN guidelines seriously, they say we need to have emissions by 2030. They say in order to do that, we need a global World War II style mobilization against climate starting this year, 2019. Hmm. They say we need to completely eliminate all carbon production starting in 2050. And they say that we need to, in addition to that, develop technology that will allow us to suck carbon out of the atmosphere because we need to get it back down to at least 350 parts per million. It's now at about 412. Pre-industrial average was 280, so we're really high above it. Now, when you like look at the, all of the sectors that would be involved in, say, having our emissions by 2030, we know a lot about energy, but that's only about 35, I think, percent of the pie. There's also infrastructure, there's industry, there's transportation, there's agriculture. All of those are more complicated than energy because we don't, we have renewables. We have the thing we want to substitute the dirty energy sources for. We don't have that for infrastructure. What are we going to do to not use cement? We don't have something that we could replace cement with. Cement, if it was a country, would be the world's third biggest emitter. China is now pouring as much cement every three years as the U.S. poured in its entire 20th century. And, you know, the same is true of the buildings. Our buildings are carbon emitters all of our transportation systems, you know, all that stuff. Now, if we really need to have the production of carbon in each of those sectors in just the next 10 years, you know from history that, like, it takes a long time to build a new highway that's not made out of concrete. It takes a long time to build new buildings or retrofit buildings. All of these infrastructure projects in particular take a really long time. There is, I think, no way that we're going to be able to do that to get to have by 2030, in part for that reason. If we had 50, 70, 90 years, like I think that we could develop carbon capture technology that would allow us to solve the problem. But at the moment, it's way more expensive to suck carbon out of the atmosphere than it is to put it up there in the first place, which means economically it's better to not burn fossil fuel and find alternatives than it is to take it out. And storing that carbon, if we did deploy it at scale, would require an infrastructure they estimate two to three times the size of today's oil and gas industry just to store the carbon. So we need to build that infrastructure. Then we need to litigate where is it located, whose backyard is it in. There's, we'd have to fight all those NIMBY fights. And that's just to store the carbon. Hmm. Operating those machines, I said earlier, using this current technology, would cost $3 trillion a year, which is, I mean, it's about the size of the Trump tax cuts. Although those, that was a decade-long tax cut. But this would have to be every year. It's a lot of money. 
Now, I think given like the scale and scope of the problem, it's not an unthinkable amount of money to spend. And I think especially if the U.S. and China in particular like really came together and like made some kind of commitment on it, we could imagine deploying this technology at scale. But in order to stay below two degrees, we would need to be opening one of these new plants at a rate of one and a half per day for the next 75 years. Holy shit. <laughs> and we today have 18 of them. So we're really far. <laughs> now, I don't think the problem can be solved without carbon capture. I think it will be a part of the problem. We're going to be shooting rockets in there and shit like that. I think we're probably also going to be doing that. I mean, it's interesting. So the guy who's the company that is the leading carbon capture company is called Carbon Engineering. And it was funded by Bill Gates and some other people. But the, the lead scientist is this guy named David Keith. So this guy, he invented this technology that allows you to suck carbon out of the atmosphere at a cost of $100 a ton. They're working on it to get the cost down, but that's the cost now. If carbon capture were the solution to the problem, this man would stand to become one of the richest people in the world because we would be spending those $3 trillion a year, like basically through his company. And he doesn't think we should deploy it. Oh. <laughs> he thinks that solar geoengineering, which is like putting aerosol sulfur in the atmosphere, is better. He thinks that his technology can help with certain sectors like jet fuel because it's really hard to decarbonize jet fuel. But generally speaking, it's just too expensive. It doesn't make sense economically. And um, he thinks that what we can do with solar geoengineering is buy ourselves a little more time to let this technology unfold. So for the listeners who don't know, basically, the science is a little bit complicated. But the reason that the Earth is warm is because it absorbs sunlight from the sun. And if you could reflect some of that sunlight back into outer space, the Earth would be less warm. It's the same logic as like, if you wear a white shirt, you're cooler than if you wear a black shirt. And scientists believe, probably rightly, that if we put certain gases in the atmosphere, they would allow some of that sunlight to be reflected up, which would basically mean we'd be masking what was the true amount of warming. So we could be producing carbon that should get us to, say, four degrees of warming, but we'd only be living with, say, two and a half degrees of warming. But the skies would be totally red. We haven't studied the effect on, um, you know, the air pollution effect on public health, which would probably be dramatic. There are some studies studying the effect on agriculture that would say it would have no positive impact. So that the negative impact of the extra stuff in the air would offset all of the positive impact. And it would be really susceptible to political gamesmanship because if you stopped that sulfur umbrella, immediately the planet would get considerably warmer and in such a rapid amount of time that it would be totally catastrophic for many of the world's natural systems. Can't you see that? It's what we're going to probably do, something stupid like that. Yeah. No, I mean, The Economist just wrote it. The Economist is like, you know, straight down the middle, conventional business wisdom, like the people in power. This is their way of looking at the world. The Economist just published a thing that totally took it for granted that we'd be doing solar geoengineering. And just to make the picture even a little more grotesque, we are already doing solar geoengineering because the aerosol pollution that we have in the atmosphere now is already making the world about a half a degree, maybe even a full degree cooler than it would be otherwise. Wow. So when we learn about, you know, we mentioned earlier those 9 million people a year who are dying from air pollution. If we solved that problem and totally eliminated that pollution, the planet would immediately get one degree warmer, which would mean we would immediately pass the threshold of catastrophe, pass two degrees, and initiate the cycle in which all of the world's ice sheets would be lost, which would ultimately produce about 260 feet of sea level rise. There's enough carbon in the atmosphere to do that right now. The world is just cooler than it should be otherwise because we're killing ourselves through air pollution, which happens to have the secondary effect of making the world a little bit cooler. That's bright to think about. 
Oh my God. Um, and just let me throw another like really perverse fact on, since I just like, did the story about California wildfires. California is like the best state in the country in terms of dealing with climate. They've got great fuel efficiency. They've got all these renewable initiatives. Everybody's obsessed with being green out there. Every year, the wildfires they're now having completely eliminate all of the progress that they make on their renewables and green energy programs because trees are stored carbon. And when they burn, carbon is released. You know, there was a stretch at Major Domo when the fires are happening. And just basically any natural disaster or event seems to disrupt the flow of food from the farmers and the green market. And there was a stretch where we couldn't get fish or crabs or certain vegetables because they just burned down, right? Some of the, or, or like the fishermen couldn't go out to the water, you name it. Yeah. It just was difficult to get certain products. And we didn't have it on the menu. And customers would say, where is it? It's like, there's a fucking fire. <laughs> just do west. Yeah. And I think they understood that when they thought about it, like, oh yeah, that's, but like there was a temporary moment of disbelief. They're like, wait, why isn't it on the menu? I'm guilty of that. Yeah. I do it all the fucking time. And now I'm like, oh yeah, there's other shit going on outside of my little bubble right now. Well, this is, I mean, we talked a little bit about the technology part of it. I mean, I think one of the perverse lessons of our tech culture right now is that we're taught, first of all, we're taught that the world on our phones is the most real world. And that like, we're taught to basically devalue the world, the real world. But also we're taught that like the height of modern living is having absolutely everything on demand at all times. And like that really obscures all of the processes, all of the labor that goes into making all of those things available. Like if if I like open up caviar and I'm like, I could get all these things like to my door in a half hour. I just like stop thinking about the farmer, the guy who's bringing it to the green market, even the chefs who are making the food. It just feels like it's like a product of my phone. And it's like, that's really problematic when all of those systems are going to be thrown into further disarray by these forces like in the, in the, in the next couple of decades. And I say that I sound like such a yuppie, right? And it's true that like, Sometimes like the shock of climate change is most dramatic when you're looking at it through the lens of privilege because so much seems to be taken away. But it's so important to keep in mind, like for everyone who's thinking about climate, like this is an all-encompassing story. It's going to hit all of us, but it's already punishing people in the global South so intensely and is going to, in the decades ahead, make things so much worse for them. So like we're, no matter what happens in places like New York and places like LA, we're going to be members of the winners, like the winning tribe. It's people in, in India and, and Bangladesh who are going to, and parts of China, like parts of sub-Saharan Africa who are going to be suffering most intensely. And the crazy thing is like, they are already, they are already really, really suffering. I mean, there was a study out two weeks ago that showed that all of these countries in the equatorial band of the world have lost 30% of their GDP over the last 40 years because of climate change. You know, there's really serious, important, respectable science that says that the phenomenon of Islamic terrorism is the result of climate change because— Yeah, you mentioned that in your book. I thought that was just mind-blowing. Yeah. That it induces radicalization. Yeah, well, I mean, it's both social disarray and radicalization. I mean, the social disarray part is maybe the first step. You realize, like, oh, if there's less food around, then things can get hairy. But then if there's less food around and things get hairy, then, like, there are going to be some people who are like, fuck this. But it also, you know, really the stuff that was maybe most interesting in the whole— the science part of the book that was most interesting to me was, like— the behavioral effects, the psychological effects, so that like, you know, temperature increases rates of murder. It increases rates of domestic assault and rape. It increases how likely a batter is to charge the mound after a pitcher hits him. It increases the rates of like car honking on the streets. 
aggression goes up. That's like just, you know, the behavioral stuff. Temperature increases incidence of mental illness so that like more people are admitted to mental hospitals when it's hotter out. Inside mental hospitals, people have more acute episodes when it's hotter out. It may have something to do with how the medicine works, but nobody quite knows yet. And it has an impact on the cognitive development of children. So like you can see in a child's lifetime earnings every day that they were in the womb when it was over 90 degrees. Like there's a measurable effect on how they do later in life. And that is even more dramatic when you study it in terms of like what are called, you know, extreme weather events. So like major floods or major droughts. If a child has lived through those events, like they suffer for a long, long time. And if they live through them when they're old enough for it to really register, the psychological effect can be really dramatic. Some of these hurricanes in Central America that I was writing about, I mean, other people have studied, I was just summarizing their work, but have had higher rates of PTSD than soldiers returning from war. The ending of the book, I think, was, for me, hard to see any hope. It was very a real ending. It's like, this is what it is. And you can make change, but it's also a murky future. There is no concrete evidence that anything's going to be good other than we know that it's going to be bad. Yeah. And that's a future, that's a storybook ending that no one really wants to read. That being said, how does a guy like me, what is your recommendation of how I'm supposed to operate in my life, having a soapbox and having ability to broadcast to people with restaurants and so on and so forth? What am I supposed to do, right? Like, I'm stuck this is like, again, sort of therapy. What am I supposed to do? Well, I would say, I mean, there, there's sort of two different ways to answer that question. One is like the very you particular answer, which is like who you are with your empire and your platform. And then there's just like how, what is one supposed to do? Like being like a conscientious. I mean, I think on some level, it's like bad that companies like yours have investors who are so focused on growth and profits. Like, I think that's even more the case when I think about Industries that are so driven by venture capital where they demand like monopolistic growth. But, you know, barbecue joints run out of meat all the time. That's built into their model. But they're also not operating in New York City that where the rents are crazy, where the you know food supply is so crazy. But there are barbecue joints where like people just like they don't even work every day of the week. They just like do what they're going to do and then they go home. And conceivably, that could be a, it's hard to imagine, especially like in a place like New York or a place like LA, like Las Vegas, it's hard to imagine operating that way. But conceivably, I don't know. What I would say to you as a um, secondarily, though, is that the most important thing is making people know what the issues are. And, you know, when you see the growth in awareness and concern, how fast that's moved over the last just few years, you know, 73% of Americans now believe climate change is real and happening now. That's up 15% since 2015. It's up 8% since last year. That's amazing. In the UK now, it's like, I don't know, it's like 40% of the country is like quite alarmed about climate change. And as a result, parliament just passed, they declared a climate emergency. They have a plan to zero out their emissions by 2050. They're really like actually leading the way on it in a totally exciting way. But we need to change our politics here. We need to change our politics globally. And that happens through awareness. The more people talk about climate change, the more people know about it, the more people see it everywhere in their lives and see what their, how their lives are tied up in it and the future of their lives are tied up in it. I think the more pressure there will be to make real change. And personally, I do think that that change, we require change of such scale that if we hope to make it real, it has to come through politics. So to me, awareness is a way station to politics, but you could see it as a way station to individual action too. The important thing is that people understand that this is, from my perspective, the defining story of our time. 
it will reshape the globe no matter what we do. If we avoid, if we miraculously avoid some of these terrible climate impacts, it will be because we have taken such dramatic action that the world will be covered in solar plants and carbon capture plantations and our infrastructure will look totally different and our transportation will look totally different and the way that we raise our food will look totally different. So even if we totally avoid catastrophic climate change, the world will still look completely different in a kind of like photo negative way because we will have taken action to avoid those impacts. And if we don't, then droughts and floods and extreme weather and climate plagues and climate wars are going to be visited upon us in ways that we don't really yet know how to deal with. But either way, it will shape the century that we're living in now. And so the most important thing is for people to understand that when they're thinking about their politics, when they're thinking about how they build their own lives, and just to spread the word. Honestly, I think like the most important thing that any individual, especially somebody with a platform like yours can do, is to talk about it. It's so fucking hard. Because <laughs> I really do think about this a lot, at least on food. I can only speak about food. Let me give you an example, and, and I'll shut the fuck up. I did a, a charity event, and um, someone was giving, like they were just on a tirade to someone because they were supporting the aid to like an African country. And they took, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars in aid from Monsanto. I hate fucking Monsanto yeah. for a, good, good, a lot of good reasons. But like without this aid, people are going to die. Yeah. And this person that represents slow food was chastising them. Like, how could you support this? How could all of your endeavors with all that you're doing, you're now supporting this? And I felt compelled to tell them, no one is saying this is a good solution. But if we don't use their product, you know, I don't know how many people are going to die because of starvation. Yeah. And right there, I saw like all the problems in food. You have someone that can potentially help shape policy that's chastising someone because they're using Monsanto. No one in this room will ever say Monsanto is good. They're like the definition of evil as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. But we can only get there through pragmatic decision-making. And it is not an absolute world we live in. And yet people that are making policies or influencing opinions are coming from an absolute point of view. And I was just sort of appalled that they would not think about alternatives, right? What else are you going to do in the meantime? Yeah. And it bothers me tremendously because I'm like, God damn it, everyone here wants to eat. Well, if, if I just think about school foods, like Dan Giusti, who used to be the head chef at Noma under Rene, he's now like, dude, the school system for how we eat is fucking broken. Yeah. How do you change it? Well, no one really wants to fucking change it because it's just too fucking hard. And expensive. And expensive. And like, if we can't do that, and it's very clear what we need to do, then it's like, fuck, then nothing can ever happen. Like, you have someone and there are people that are like, we need to feed these kids better. Yeah. But no one wants to actually do it. So I don't know what the answers are. And... Yeah, I mean, you know, philosophers say that like climate change is a wicked problem because it's every every part of it is complicated and it's everywhere you look. But I think you're totally right. It's not a silver bullet single problem. It's not a silver bullet solution. It's not like there's one thing we can do and everything will be okay. We're going to have to live in the gray. Yeah. And I I just believe like if America's produced one philosophy that is truly American, like jazz or baseball, it's like pragmatism. Yeah. And or moral ambiguity. Moral ambiguity is exactly. <laughs> and I think that's something we have to embrace a little bit more of is, okay, that's like, again, going back to the Chipotle thing, that's just a basis point better. Yeah. But like, we got to keep on going there. So I tell myself, 
And when I think about my son, it's like, I'm going to do my best. So maybe this is future generations or it's not as bad for them. And then it's just, I don't know. I don't have an answer. Yeah. So it's important to talk to a guy like you that's obviously yeah. dedicated. I mean, I have no answers either. When I think about my daughter, I think, you know, the most important thing that I can impart to her is just empathy. Because I think the real risk is that we end up living in a world that has a lot more suffering because of climate change than the one we live in now. And people like us, relatively well off, relatively able to protect themselves from those forces, just don't pay that much attention to it. And that will be like the sort of worst tragedy and worst indictment. And I think if you start from a place of real empathy for people, you know, living elsewhere in the world and think that the life of someone in Bangladesh is the same as like your cousin in Miami, then some, some like action emerges from that. Yeah, I mean, and that sounds naive to you. It's not. I mean, I mean it is and it isn't. You know. I mean, I'll, I'll get you out of here. Yeah. <laughs> now, but I appreciate you coming down. Thanks Thank for having you. me. Thank it's you. It's really great to talk. <laughs>Well, that was my conversation, a very tough conversation with David Wallace Wells, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth. Please go out and buy it and read it. It's a tough read, but it's very important. He goes step by step as to how the world will change as the world gets hotter. Two degrees, three degrees, and even four degrees more is like worst case scenario and how it will impact your life from water usage to the food you eat to the hot summers uh, that you might endure and sort of the craziness that you might have to experience. It's something that is, again, very tough to go through. I'm glad that he came on. And if you made it this far, thank you for listening to this podcast. Again, it's not your normal food show, podcast, topics, but I think that it needs to be more of a a regular occurrence in how we talk about food because it has a dramatic impact on our world today. And if I'm going to be a good custodian to the environment to being the best sort of intermediary between farms and and a guest. Like, these are things that we all have to take more seriously. And I have to start asking myself some really hard questions as we expand and how do we do it in a responsible fashion. And even if there is a way to do it, I don't know. And um, much larger conversations that I can't answer about government policy and sort of the world we live in. All I know is, I just want to start to have a conversation. I know that I don't have it enough with my own team and group of friends. So um, again, if you made it this far, thank you. I want to get into a Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com question. It sort of ties into what we're talking about. Uh, Neil Bell asked, the photos you post to Instagram of the food you cook for your family are beautiful and made me wonder how you source ingredients for cooking at home. Are you shopping at your local grocery stores or getting things from the distributors that supply your restaurants? As an avid home cook, sometimes I feel limited by the ingredients available to me. Is this an issue for you? Thanks for sending that question in, Neil. First and foremost, yeah, I've been cooking a lot more at home than ever before. So I've been learning what to use, right? I've never cooked at home before. That sounds like an insane thing, but cooking at home for a family to feed other people and not a once in the year for Thanksgiving type of thing. So I've been learning some tricks that I've created and where I get a lot of those ingredients, I'd like to tell you that it's all from the green market, but right now I'm in New York. I haven't been visiting the green market because there hasn't been too much. Now, obviously they're at the end of the ramp season and asparagus and the bounty of summer is about to happen. So yes, I'll probably visit at least once a week, probably on like a Monday or Wednesday as I stroll through work. 
But for the most part, I, I seem to order like everyone else, whether it's Amazon, Fresh Direct, stopping by Whole Foods, stopping by any kind of local market to buy milk or eggs and stuff like that. So they're the same ingredients that you buy. I'm trying to buy the best kinds of ingredients that these places offer. And I, I still weigh the same questions as everyone else. Man, organic is a hell of a lot more expensive than just regular and all of these things. Is, is it that important to buy organic blueberries versus conventional blueberries? And these are hard questions because I don't take product from my restaurants. And that's especially difficult when it comes to seafood. I think that seafood at supermarkets is uniformly bad. They do have occasionally some things that are good, like when salmon are in season. But for the most part, it's not nearly as good from the fares we get at the restaurants. That is by far and away another class. And fish at supermarket prices is like very expensive. So I, if I'm going to buy it, I want it to be really good. So sometimes I've gone to the, there's a, I can't remember the name. There's a fish market in Chelsea Market. I bought it there. I think it's just a lobster place. They have some really great fish when it's fresh. And usually their stuff is high quality, so that's where I get it. But I, I tend not to burden my restaurants by taking from them anything that's raw or cooked. Occasionally, sometimes something might happen, like I'll take some like chilies or something like that. But for the most part, I buy all of my ingredients just like everyone else, and I don't do any crazy special purveyor stuff. My wife has um, started visiting SOS chefs in the in the East Village a little bit more. A Tef is there, and she's fantastic, and my wife's been trying to buy some products and some ingredients that might help her with her nursing, but like that would be sort of the extent of like the spices that we might use, that those are always going to be from SOS or um, Laboit, because I do think a lot of the, the spice rack that you get in the supermarkets is total garbage, from black pepper to cardamom to cinnamon to you name it. It uh, doesn't matter what supermarket I think the spices that they offer are total garbage. And when I try to get something from an Asian market, I don't get anything from Whole Foods. Sometimes I order from Amazon. Sometimes I order through H-Mart. But oftentimes I make the trip to 32nd Street, which is a pain in the ass. Occasionally, I'd say a couple times a year, we might go to Mitsua in New Jersey or to the larger H-Mart out in Queens or New Jersey as well. But, you know, as a home cook, I'm just like you. I'm trying to buy the best ingredients for the best price. I tend to stock up on a lot of really great canned products because that'll last me a long time and doesn't sort of lose freshness. And, you know, I'm a value shopper just like everyone else. Like the other day, there was really great shrimp and it was at a really great price. And I bought it and I froze some because they were previously unfrozen shrimp. I could talk endlessly about this, but I'm trying to buy great product and it's not easy. So if I need to buy something and if I go into a supermarket and it's not great, I'm just not going to buy it. So I'll alter what I'm trying to cook at home. But for the most part, it's like the Checo pasta, a lot of, lot of dried pastas and a lot of Korean ingredients that my mother-in-law sends or my mom still sends. Um, somehow, I don't know how they get all this stuff because it's stuff that you can't even get at H Mart or an Asian supermarket. But like I have a steady supply of Asian noodles, Italian pasta, canned tomatoes. I've been trying to buy better canned tomatoes from Crispianco because they're sweeter and more delicious. There's always Parmesan cheese, but I'm not getting stuff from the restaurant. So to reiterate, I, I, to talk endlessly, I'm just going to end it at this. I buy the same shit as everyone else does, and um, I just try to make it more delicious. So... Thanks for sending in that question, Neil. I know that was a long, meandering answer. Keep on sending in those questions to ask Dave at majordomomedia.com. Thank you guys for this month of the double 
episodes every week. Uh, really can't believe it's been a year of the Dave Chang Show. Appreciate all the listeners and support and to all the guests that have been on. Thank you so much. Please give us five stars, however you rate this podcast, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify. Talk to you guys next week. Take it easy.